0: Welcome to the Men of Character podcast with your host, Bill Maser.
1: Okay, welcome everybody back to the Men of Character podcast. Today I've got Jose Nino. Jose is a freelance writer. He's someone I found on Twitter. Um, he tweets a lot about economic issues, has written a couple of ebooks as well on those topics. So I decided to bring him on the show here and talk to him about capitalism, socialism, entrepreneurship. So welcome, Jose. If you wanna give a little more detailed bio, go right ahead.
0: Well, thank you for so much for having me on, Bill.
1: Um, well, I was originally born in
0: Venezuela and came to the States when I was relatively young in the late 90s, right before things like really like hit the fan there and my parents were small business owners and due to a lot of the political instability and economic instability there, um, that was like brewing that time, they saw, especially in my dad's case, his business fall and they had to make a decision to go to like the US uh, for my family's like improvement, especially my sister and I, and since then, I've um obviously gone through like the typical like immigrant like assimilation process and then I got pretty involved like politically when I was in the university in a lot of like conservative and like libertarian and right-wing causes and that's translated also into like my professional career where I used to be a lobbyist for a Gun Lobby, the National Association for Gun Rights, and I also did a lot of email marketing with them. Nowadays, I am actually a freelance writer and also email marketer. I write for various websites such as the Mises Institute. I've been featured on Zero Hedge and Infowars, and I specifically write about economics and political topics. I also have two eBooks, How Socialism Destroyed Venezuela and The 10 Myths of Gun Control. So my main focus these days is mostly writing on a lot of contemporary issues dealing with politics and economics from a much more like decentralization and limited government perspective.
1: Gotcha. So what, you know, you mentioned that you got involved politically, like in college, was that more like your, your parents' influence? Was it more you're driven by your own reading? What, what, what was the, like, did you, Were you ever uh, on the other side of the spectrum, or was that sort of something you were brought up with?
0: Well, actually, interestingly, like in my like adolescent years, I was like all over the spectrum, and there were some points where I was actually pretty socialist because whenever I would like visit like Venezuela or even like neighboring countries like Colombia, because my mom is Colombian, um, I was pretty astounded by like the poverty in those countries and i automatically blamed capitalism and that was partially because of the environment i was raised in because when you're in public schools these days there's generally a huge aversion towards capitalism and blaming like the capitalist west for all of the third world's problems which often are very much self-inflicted but to your point on how i got to like more of my current views it was a combination of factors of just lurking through the internet and also a family friend of mine or accountant would uh was like a big follower of like Alex Jones, like Ron Paul and all these people. And he would constantly like plant seeds whenever I would have discussions with him. And after like seeing videos of like Ron Paul on YouTube and just like kind of like processing his message, I was completely convinced that like limited government capitalism and all those principles were the way to go. So that's how I became very politically involved and informed and university gave me a lot of firsthand experience as well when I went to UT Austin for organizing groups and like leading these kind of groups and spreading that message.
1: Yeah, you made me think of something interesting because I had a similar like I'm so my I'm half Colombian um obviously Colombia hasn't gone through well Colombia was in worse shape probably when you left Venezuela than than, uh, but Venezuela is definitely in worse shape right now um but my own political views have changed similar to yours and Ron Paul was a catalyst as, as well for that big catalyst um but I find it interesting you said that you know a lot of people like in school you you you're sort of told I feel like one of the conclusions I've come to is that there is no there is nobody who defends capitalism right the 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 government the politicians defend government the the schools defend government right so when they when their history books are written it's always in defense of what they never mentioned that you know we can get into a ton of different things that have occurred through history that are all told that government saw them when they actually created them and it's like there is no one that actually defends um, capitalism. So you end up hearing from the media, from schools, from the from the politicians themselves, all the problems of society are to blame on business owners and capitalism. <laughs> and and you don't hear the other perspective because there is you know this the market is just a decentralized thing. It's not there is no one leading it, or you know you could say that some businessmen are the leaders of it. But they don't. They might not necessarily even understand how the system works. It's that's the point of it. It's like a, it's like a, a an organism, a decentralized organism. Um, I don't know where I was going with that, but it's just sort of an, an observation of what you said about about schooling. But I, I guess w- one question I had was that I get a lot of you know I, I tweet a lot, and so do you. And but I, I tend to tweet very um, pro capitalist tweets that that people, you know, get bad reaction. Usually a lot of european people but even some american telling me that we need socialized medicine and this and that or that that democrats don't actually promote socialism, they promote you know, it's different. It's different than socialism. So I guess where do you define the line between what is a socialist country and what is a capitalist country? And when because I think a lot of the people on the left today they, they always point to the ones that are like, you know, let's say Bernie Sanders and, and the like, those type of supporters, they're like, oh, well, the Scandinavian countries, those are socialists. And how, where, how would you respond to that? Like, is that true? Are they socialist countries? What, what are they if they're not?
0: Well, to your first point, Bill, you are correct about the education system in that there's just no one that's defending capitalism these days. It's basically turned.
1: I into- feel like I've decided to make myself the person who defends capitalism. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> me, well, me and you and a couple other people. Well, Ron Paul, obviously. But I, I don't feel any like I think it's actually the right and just thing to do. And I don't think it's a perfect Like, it's not perfect because humans aren't perfect. But if we think that we can do something better and it has to do with more government control we're like we've lost our minds so that so i i, I feel very um self-righteous in my defense of <laughs> capitalism but sorry yeah we'll go on
0: well yeah you see educational institutions they've essentially morphed into left-wing think tanks that's just like the cold hard truth these days and and this culture actually has like seeped into not only like schools but like churches businesses everything and that's why it's so pervasive that's why it's like rare to find people that will like give a full-throated like defense of capitalism now to your next point about what is like the difference between like socialism and like these democratic socialist variants well I think that there is somewhat of a difference when you're talking about countries like Cuba, North Korea, like the Soviet Union. Those are like the old garrison state socialist models where pretty much the government owns like the means to production and almost like all private property in the country. There's just like no property rights whatsoever. And like the state can confiscate that stuff as will. Now, when we're talking about countries like the Scandinavian countries or like European welfare states in general, those are more capitalist welfare states that got rich in the late fair periods from like the 1880s up until the 1930s. And then they s- established welfare states in certain sectors of the economy, such as healthcare, education, But here's the key, the prerequisite for the welfare state is a capitalistic base. You have to have somewhat of a capitalist stock, a capital stock, if you will, to like actually plunder, to even have these kinds of services. Not doing so is putting a cart before the horse and will inevitably bankrupt these countries. But yeah, if you look at...
1: What about... I'm, I''m I'm playing the I'm playing the devil's advocate here because I because I have my own thoughts but i I, I respect your opinion so I want to hear your your response to these. So what about what if you were someone who said, well, those countries, Scandinavian countries they're actually better off than the United States. so why that's what that's what I want for the United States. So why are you against that? What's wrong with that model?
0: Well, if you actually look at those countries, term, in terms of economic freedom, some of them are like on par with the U.S. According to certain indices like the Heritage Foundation Index or the Fraser Institute Index, despite like having pretty, like it's
1: it's pretty it's almost as easy there, or, or maybe in some countries easier to start a business there than it is, and run a business than it is here. Is that what you're saying?
0: That is correct. In fact, I believe, like, Denmark generally, like, beats the U.S. in certain indices there, and that's the thing that's ignored by a lot of uh, people like Bernie Sanders and company, that these countries actually have robust private sectors. They have property rights. The state doesn't control all the means of production. They just have, like, one or two sectors of the economy that you do see, like, socialist characteristics. I actually think that... um, the US, The bigger threat these days is like more like globalism and social progressivism than 20th century style uh, socialism because those types of systems, um, they have a unique set of problems where they try to like homogenize society through like social engineering via the state and also just politicizing every aspect of society. But I think they're. I think this is slightly different from the current. Um, is slightly different from the previous social, socialist model. Now, for those Scandinavian countries, we can learn several lessons. Just the fact that we probably should be deregulating more in the U.S. The U.S. has monster bureaucracy. There's like certain um, estimates from like a Competitive Enterprise Institute that like, when you look at all like federal regulation and bureaucracies, like. They account for at least like $2 trillion of like economic activity. And that's not just including also the amount of time lost like complying with regulations, just like removing half of those regulations could create a massive economic boom for the U.S. that would like elevate living standards from everyone, from the rich to the poorest of the poor. But I think that we have to be careful when we're looking at these Scandinavian countries because. You have to understand their economic history. They got rich because of capitalism, and now, like, they're basically just banking off the wealth that they created to fund all these lavish social programs, which have actually collapsed um, in the '90s, as witnessed with Sweden, which had to like reform a lot of its economy and shift towards more school choice in its education sector and tame some parts of the welfare state. And even to this day, these countries have become like welfare magnets for. Third world mass migration that does not assimilate very well into these countries, so it's not all pretty roses and easy going in these kind of countries that have welfare states. It comes with certain social costs in the long term that may not yep. be apparent immediately.
1: Do you, so one thing I've been thinking on is because I, you know, I'm, I'm I had tweets where I'm. I'm bringing up my tweets because that's why I I wanted to talk to you because I was getting some responses there, but I, you know, I tweet very, you could like most tweets, right? You make general statements. So I said, it's like, well, um, I forget exactly what I said, but it's like capitalism. um, What did I I had one around capitalism. You get Steve jobs and Tim cook and socialism. you, you, you get no jobs and there's nothing to cook, and so that that one triggered a, a good amount of people. But and and so some people might say, look at that and say, oh well, those Scandinavian countries they have large welfare states and they're doing pretty well. Do you do you do you agree with? Because I think Mises, if I'm and I'm I'm referencing Ludwig von Mises, who was who's an Austrian economist, who's sort of like the economic viewpoints of, of where Ron Paul got his stuff and who's an economist, um, do you agree with him that those, is there a risk that those countries, because you sort of mentioned that you don't think those countries can go and, and towards the old garrison, as you refer to them, type states, but didn't Mises make the argument that those countries that sort of take that middle road, that the middle road does lead to those, to socialism, to that type of model? Do you agree with that? Or do you think it would be some different variation
0: Or what are your thoughts on that? I agree to some extent with Mises' interpretation because essentially government growth is like a cancer in that it will just like metastasize over time whenever you let the state control a certain sector of the economy. And even like Sweden had to put up with that after the 1970s and had to reform. And countries that don't reform essentially will evolve into some type of chaotic situation whether it's complete state control or complete breakdown of like society which has been noticeable throughout history and I think with like in the European context um, it's probably going to turn into like more of a globalistic government where these countries are not going to have much local autonomy they're going to be completely flooded with migrants that are becoming public charges and not assimilating to their culture and it's going to be bad it might not look like something like the soviet union or 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 cuba but it will be pretty unstable and a lot of people will not be able to adjust to it i think that mises may have not been correct in so far as like what this will look like in the long term but he is on the right path and saying that more government intervention will lead to of optimal social outcomes they're not a solution and in fact that the swedish social democratic model um is kind of like a slow motion societal collapse if you will it's unsustainable and we're kind of seeing it now and if there aren't necessary reforms taken as soon as possible it will just continue to deteriorate until like it hits a point of no return
1: so did, did, did Ven, sort, of, sort of going back to Venezuela because I think it's all related to some degree did sort of Venezuela like make that like past that corner basically where the, the the amount of government and the amount of things that were actually now run by the public sector or the means of production in the public se- sector where they're taking over oil industry and other industries banking, is that sort of cross that threshold where now you see the whole breakdown of the the system?
0: Yes, in, in the Venezuelan case, I think actually it does fit Bonnice's model a lot. You have to understand the Venezuelan economic history of the past century to understand why Venezuela is where it's at now. Previously, Venezuela was actually one of like the re- richest countries in not just Latin America but in the world by the 1950s. From like the 1910s till like the 1950s, Venezuela had a very hands-off approach to economic affairs. It, it didn't have a central bank till like 1939. There was very little regulation. Taxation was pretty low, and the country was able to attract pretty skilled immigrants from european countries such as spain italy portugal and even get a lot of skilled immigrants from its neighbor in colombia as well as lebanese and syrian christians and these factors propelled it to like one of the most prosperous countries at the time along with its oil which did modernize the country and turn and converted it from a A agricultural backwater to like one of the fastest growing economies in the first half of the 20th century but the problem was that once the country reverted back to democracy in 1958 it established a bipartisan political order that was based on like social democracy and the idea that the state will eventually take over the oil sector which it did so in the 1970s when it nationalized the oil sector and since then the Venezuelan state just got bigger and bigger decade after decade like once the oil sector was nationalized the Venezuelan state had a massive piggy bank where it could like draw from draw funds to like finance any type of project from like dope buying uh, through social welfare to like crony capitalistic um handouts to whatever politically connected corporation was connected to the government in power um, in that period and this was also accompanied by the state's takeover of the central bank where the government bought majority stake there. So any type of political independence was pretty much lost. And Venezuelan presidents could just go in and demand like central banks just print out money like almost at will. And you saw like the first hand effects of this in the nineteen eighties when Venezuela had to revalue its Bolivar, which was the most people but um latin american currency throughout the 20th century and from there the situation deteriorated even further as the country became wrapped with debt had too many economic controls and there there were some attempts at making reforms in the late 80s to early 90s but they didn't go very far enough and the president conducting the reforms Carlos Andrés Pérez was impeached by his very own party, um, Democratic Action, which was one of the two social democratic parties in charge there. And from that point forward, the country just basically kicked the can down the road. And just to give you an idea of like how bad things were back then, um, Venezuela has not seen single-digit inflation from far back, as uh, 1983, so Venezuelan millennials have never witnessed a year of oh, low-digit inflation. And when my family left, actually, in 1997, well, it was 96 when my dad's business folded, inflation was, like, around 100% then. And so that kind of wiped out a lot of, like, the middle class and below. And one really crazy statistic most people don't realize is that in 1998, the average Venezuelan was poor on a per capita GDP basis than the average Venezuelan in 1958. In fact, such a development was considered like an economic disaster, according to Charles Jones, an economist that wrote the book Introduction to Economic Growth. And it was only visible in countries such as like um, Nicaragua and other sub Saharan countries during that period. And these factors actually led to the rise of Hugo Chavez because his message was very much demagogic and appealing to the poor, saying that the co- the previous political order was very corrupt, which he's correct in doing so. And he actually kind of positioned himself as a centrist during his presidential campaign in 1998. But he ironically not only continued the same policies but doubled down on the previous failures, and that's why Venezuela is where it's at today.
1: That makes a lot of sense. Um, I you know, one thing I've noticed because I had these discussions with people, you know, they, they I think they take a lot of my criticisms of socialism, they're like, Oh, that, but that's not going to happen, that can't happen here. You know, we're this is the like this is Western civilization or whatever, or we're industrialized. But but I, I it, do you do you believe that Venezuela is an example of that actually occurring in an industrialized country?
0: I after a lot of like just reading and researching, I think that it's gonna probably be very different in the West because like there's different factors at play Western countries are just far more economically advanced than even Venezuela was at like its peak but there there are threats I think um, mostly in demographics because you have an aging Western population that is going to be retiring in masks like as of now and it's going to be like that way up until like the mid 2030s so you're going to see reversals like a lot of these countries are going to have like insolvent governments and the response is either going to be like increased taxation to finance these programs or the stealth tax of increased inflation which will wipe out a lot of like the middle class you're going to start western countries like see negative economic growth which is almost unheard of in the past um century when you look at most of the west and then you have also a lot of like mass migration of like from third world countries where they simply are not assimilating because of like the bad incentives integration systems and also the welfare state as well so you can have a lot of people that are going to become public charges and that's going to add more problems both fiscally and socially so you're going to see some form of political instability. I'm not saying it's Venezuela, but there's something going to happen because these types of systems are very unsustainable. And eventually the capital stock will run out because of demographics. So you have those factors. Then you just have the fact that these states are so advanced, they can like do a lot of thought policing through like, agencies like the NSA and even big tech. Big tech has been very proactive in deplat forming um engaging in forms of surveillance and all of that that's just like a feature of like first world like soft authoritarianism if you will you're going to see stuff that looks like it's coming out of a dystopian novel like brave New world if we're not already in it which i argue we're, we are pretty much in that And I think that those are like the realities the West is facing. But Venezuela is a good lesson to learn for the economic history textbooks that like this type of central planning like fails like wherever it's implemented. But I do think in the West, we are seeing a kind of like different type of beast that has to be fought like in a unique way. But it's still like, but it's still like, definitely a threat to a lot of the, like the founding principles that made like the West great
1: yeah you may on the, on the positive side you're making me think that that the you know when you had the 20th century when you had places like the Soviet Union and Maoist China and Nazi Germany that were very but I think people they, they the people with maybe a very mainstream view of politics View those as completely different sides, and I think you would probably agree with me that. And I, I take more of the that they're both about centralizing power under the state. But I think what you're what 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 you're making me think with what your analysis is is that there's less of a risk of that occurring. It's almost like when when capitalism was at its infancy, which you could say, maybe even some to some degree at like somewhat of a early peak mid 20th century, right when you have that post World War II, when the United States really just boomed and, and innovated and grew as a world power and all that, that that was maybe the only chance that really a, a completely centrally controlled totalitarian government could compete with a with a with a market economy. You get what I mean? Like I think what what you're making me realize is you can't no you can't no longer like look at North Korea. You that country is not a real threat. Like it maybe if it just manages to get a nuclear weapon like it has to go for the ultimate threat rather than really being an economic and and uh, like formidable threat I guess in some ways to to Western countries are you is is that what you're articulating or am I just like getting something positive about your (laughs) what you're saying
0: the world has definitely gotten more peaceful in the last century so conventional military threats i think um are not that big of an issue for now because there's just factors like nuclear deterrence a lot of these countries have nukes like the u.s has nukes china has nukes russia has nukes north korea has nukes and a lot of that keeps these countries in check from engaging in like really conventional battles. That's why most warfare these days tend to be like asymmetric or through proxy. But I think the bigger problems these days are much more internal where you have like the state tries to like change the culture through a lot of social engineering, through like the politicization of like LGBT, mass migration, like that diversity stuff and like all this like white guilt culture is like really big and I think that the goal is kind of like a globalized type of government like globalized homogenized type of culture like global homo as some people call it because um, that's why you're seeing these movements like destroy not only like confederate monuments but also the founding fathers monuments because they were racist or any type of like American figure because there's like a bigger play at hand of trying like kinda turn like the US into what like the EU looks like. Yeah. And you see a lot of um you'll see a lot of these social media companies as well work in tandem with the state to like limit free speech on the guise of like hate speech and all this. And they're gonna start with like a low hanging fruit with like the so called like alt right and all these like so called Nazi groups they'll Say that they're anti Semitic, Holocaust deniers, and blah, blah blah blah. And then they're going to move up and start targeting like more like conventional right wingers. And it's really all about like this type of like globalist, leftist, like thought control. Um, the previous model of like socialism, like the Soviet Union and North Korea use, is, is an obvious failure. And I think political elites have kind of gotten aware of that. So they've pivoted. To more of a mixed economy, where, yeah, we'll say we'll give you some freedom, like you'll have your own private property, but we can like completely, uh, control you through all these anti-discrimination laws, um, affirmative action stuff, and all these other mandates. Like a lot of businesses have quotas, and also having like social media police you if you decide to like make an off the cuff comment. And then an outrage mob will follow like it's it's a very strange type of dynamic that is very different actually from like 20th century because and previous centuries for that matter because in those type of battles you were base it was basically individual for state or like community for state now you're seeing like different factors there's an economic warfare battle whenever you have all these organizations deep platforming and key banking people then you have a like cultural battle where you have a lot of celebrities and other figures just constantly demonizing Western culture, capitalism, then you have the obvious political battles, but there's just much more like leaders to these type of battles. Now and they have to be fought accordingly.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think one of the, the conclusions I came to when I went from being someone who was more on the left liberal to more libertarian was that I couldn't, had, there was no other explanation for like how the the last let's say the from the industrial revolution to now like you 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 have to forget about your political parties and try to ask yourself why did that occur like what what happened humans existed for tens of thousands of years previously and then you look at it, the industrial revolution and the gains in yeah just the standard of living and whatever other metrics you want to use just skyrocket and like why that occurred. And, and my own analysis, just being in certain searching for the truth was at the core of that was everything that Western civilization was about was about property rights, individual freedom, individual rights. And that is essentially the core thing. And I think that's why I have no problem defending capitalism because I know it's at the root of where the, the progress that's occurred, and I know that every other party, political media, just uses business and, and capitalism as a as a punching bag to blame all our problems instead of acknowledging the issues that they that they cause. Um, but I know what you, your thoughts are on that.
0: Well, this require this to understand like how we are at today. You have to understand like our history and like the history of like Western civilization. Western civilization was not always like the richest societies. In like, fact, they were quite backwards in like the eras before Christ, for example. And those eras were marked by the fact that if you just had like resources, like the most like rich societies, like China, India, Egypt, they were all located along like rivers and areas where it was like for fertile to grow crops, and they had a first mover advantage in that regard. But those, those places were characterized by a lot of centralization. These were empires, strictly speaking. But in the European case, you saw one really salient feature, apart from the defense of property rights, was the decentralization and the development of like what would be like, considered like the modern day uh, nation state and you saw a lot of competing units which allowed like countries to craft like different sets of policies and attract like people that would be willing to move to countries with more favorable business or even political environments and that type of self-experimentation took centuries to develop and it ultimately culminated with the industrial revolution where you saw like the maximum expression you know like property rights being defended, very low government intervention, and strong respect for civil liberties across most European countries. And as a result, it has created unprecedented amount of wealth that even like the countries that originally had the first mover advantages of having a lot of resources could could, could not even master. And that, that model is slowly deviating now that, that we're focusing more on political centralization and just the fact that the managerial state is more concerned about destroying people's rights to associate and kowtowing also to political correctness culture that completely dismisses the accomplishments of like western thinkers because they had like maybe some racist views and they're completely dismissing that and i think that stuff is very important in the cultural battle because once you destroy like a country's like heritage it's no longer a country you have nothing to really rally against uh, rally around and then it becomes easy to force whatever type of tyrannical scheme down a populist throat.
1: yeah yeah i think Yeah, I I think that one of the things, one of the problems I have is when people do make that judgment about, oh, well, you know, when they were around during slavery and that just automatically makes them, any, any opinion they had is irrelevant. Well, of course, slavery was a grave error. I don't think anyone would argue that that was a good decision at the time. Now, every other country also at the time had slavery you know maybe some countries got rid of it in a much peace much more peaceful fashion right like great britain and i think brazil got rid of it before we did it and or abolished it and and did it peacefully but i think to dismiss every single thing that that those people thought or believed or the principles that and then some of those fa- some of those people were abolitionists as well right or they just weren't the majority right so you know, some of them, if you read their writings were against it, but they weren't the majority. So the majority, as we, as we know, usually rules what, what, um, what the governments will, will do. So, but yeah, to dismiss everything is a, to me, a grave mistake because yeah, if you, and I, I feel like that's not really talked about in the education system, going back to your, your earlier point, you know, we're, it's like a very like high level surface level understanding of why this country was founded, And then they mix in all type of political pieces to it that have, that are not really as important to the history of this country. Like things that have happened in the last maybe 50 years that may, that maybe are some things that are, but they're more, they're more mentioned like for, for the political agenda, so that you come to the same belief system that, that the people who, yeah, who write those textbooks want you, to, want you to come to. But they don't really harp on, well, because if you actually went and you looked at the founding principles of, of the United States, then you would quickly realize, and you understood them, you'd quickly realize that the current governments and the last, that we've had maybe for the last 100 years, have all gone against, <laughs> like we've talked about central banking, like, well, that's not a system that, that meshes well with our founding uh, principles or the surveillance state that you mentioned, well, that goes directly against the Fourth Amendment. So it's like if people actually were educated to understand what the main principle, instead of looking at just the negatives of, of what occurred during that time, because every every time is going to be viewed negatively. I'm sure that, that the people alive today, people 50 years from now are gonna think like, what in the world were they thinking about some topic? So I think it's very like, we, I don't know how we think we're, better than than previous people when those people actually gave us for good or for better or worse the world that we're living in today and for the most part if you judge it accurately it's a better world than that has ever existed for for all races of people and for all genders and but and I feel like some people are there's no perspective there's no understanding of, of history that, that they don't see that like so Yeah, that's my two cents. I don't know if you want to add anything to
0: that. You're spot on, Bill. In fact, pretty much every major society in human history has practiced slavery from Arabs, Turks, Chinese, to to even Africans have enslaved themselves. But it was really Western society that ultimately got the ball rolling by abolishing slavery. The, the British led the charge on that. And the U.S. lagged behind. But yeah, that's the thing. You have to hold all those societies to the same standards, though. If you're going to, like, criticize Western society, you've got to criticize then Middle Eastern societies, African societies, what have you, for practicing slavery. But that's also part of, like, the bigger play. There is a very anti-Western narrative among political elites these days. You have a lot of white guilt and that's all part of a plan i think to create like a more like globalized government that destroys a lot of like native cultures and tries to create this very consumeristic brave new world type of culture that mixes aspects of government and private control and social policing so yeah we have to understand our history and we can't be using blanket statements like this saying like that we must completely disavow the founders because they had let's say reactionary views okay if we do that we need to disavow then every other historical figure in any society
1: yeah no i think i think it's something that's shouldn't be controversial but i think it is but I, i think it's something that people need to realize and read go and read the works of Thomas Paine, or and and just re, and and then tell me that 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 person wasn't uh, informed and educated in, in many ways, whether they had some beliefs that, or yeah, could be as terrible as slavery. I feel like you got to take everything in, in in the context of the time and 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 yeah, be it's like it just shows a lack of self-awareness of this current generation, I think, and a lack of understanding of of history. Um, one thing I wanted to point out that we talked about. You know I, I think, and this is something that I've discussed on Twitter, but I feel like I haven't mentioned on the podcast. I think a lot of people, like you said, those countries that like Sweden, Scandinavian countries, large welfare states, capitalistic economies some some of the industries are controlled by government, but not a majority. I think in America, actually, if you look at us we we have we do have social we have welfare programs. But we actually have maybe a, a larger mix of corporate welfare. But we have just as big of a welfare state. I I, I feel like that's like. I th- I feel like we one of the mistakes that people make is they view. They view America as oh that's capitalism, and 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 I want to hear your thoughts on this because I feel like, sometimes I think to myself I'm like do I am I making the same argument that the socialists make when they say oh well Venezuela is not socialism it's and sometimes I I catch myself thinking. Well, the United States is not capitalism. That's not like there are a lot of things that the United States does that are not what a a capitalist country would do. Or when you talk about like free market capitalism, like central banking would be one example. State run education would be another example. But I don't know what your thoughts are on that around the, the corporate welfare aspect that exists in the United States with sort of the military industrial complex and a lot of the just the benefits that go towards corporations rather than towards social uh things like they do in in the scandinavian countries
0: well lazy faire capitalism pretty much died in during the presidency of like woodrow wilson with the establishment of the federal reserve and the income tax and then the new deal and the great society basically were the left hook and right hook that knocked out any aspect of laissez-faire in the u.s like anybody that says that we are laissez-faire has not really fully studied economic policies that have been implemented over the last century now you still have nominal private property ownership in the u.s which is huge because the reason why i think like countries like venezuela and the rest of a really hardcore socialists, Ilk like collapse, like very fast, it has to do with private property confiscation, which creates massive regime uncertainty and repels any form of foreign investment and type of productive activity. So that completely creates collapse situations that will happen within like months, if not a few years. But in the U.S., though, so you have like what I would say like a, it's a mixed economy. That's like the most accurate way. It's like a form of managerial capitalism where bureaucracies are effectively like telling businesses what um, what stuff they can do and what they can't do, and they are also like um, socially engineering certain types of outcomes as well. And what we do see is that is like a politicization of business because all these businesses now are starting to become part of like woke capital and getting involved in like sjw culture but a lot of that too is just the left has pivoted in its approach since the collapse of the soviet union so they're like actually like heavily lobbying and pressuring a lot of corporations to uh, carry out their agenda and The good news is that there's ways to battle that, though, because of online business. You have, like, so many more ways to make income now that's not dependent on, like, a nine-to-five wage from, like, a politically correct corporation. And that's, like, the beauty of, like, even limited forms of capitalism. There's ways you have, like, wiggle room to counteract that. And even in Venezuela these days as unstable as it is, you see a lot of, like, the skilled, like, tech workers working on Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies to find ways out of, like, the hyperinflationary chaos they live in, and that's the power of, like, the human spirit and, like, markets at work. But, yeah, I think that the the main question at hand is, like, what do you believe in? Do you believe in centralized control or localist control and ultimately individual control i tend to believe that like we should decentralize political power as much as possible like i would rather be governed by um my state or locality than a bunch of bureaucrats thousands of miles away in dc but ultimately those are progressions i want what i want ideally is very localized control, where the freedom of association is respected, property rights are respected, and I can speak my mind freely without fear of an outraged mob or getting thrown in the cage by the government. And that's what I aim for ultimately.
1: Yeah, that, I, I agree with that. I think, and I think one one thing that I always point out to people that I think is never talked about, as far as the U.S. is concerned, like our co- the federal government has collects i think it's four trillion dollars annually currently so i't don't, i don't know any anybody like can you really call any government that collects that much money from the citizens from the economy the businesses laissez faire it makes no <laughs> it's the largest government to ever exist it It makes no sense to me how, but I understand it's like like it actually is what you said it's the we're we're dealing with the like the benefits, like the, the 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 actual ROI that came with being capital more capitalist, and now we're we still we're still getting a lot of the benefits, even though we're doing a lot of things that actually go completely against anything that has to do with capitalism. So that that was my one point, and I do think I don't know what you think about this, but I, I do think there is a risk, like when there's an economic crisis, right? Like why did you mentioned the New Deal and and that was under FDR and like the there are opportunities for the government to get more control and be more totalitarian under economic crises or other types of crises. I don't know what your thoughts are on that.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, crisis is the lifeblood of, like, state control. That's when people become much more emotional and susceptible to, like, demagoguery. That's the perfect time for... Tyrants to rise up and bamboozle the public into accepting their crazy government proposals. I mean, we saw that with Venezuela, Hugo Chavez. He capitalized on the stagnation of the previous few decades to implement his an agenda. And I think, too, in the U.S., one thing I forgot to mention, because of the fact that we have so many states, it does vary as well. Like in terms of like where you live in you live like in the left coast especially california there's not much economic freedom there there's massive taxation and regulation spending and all that jazz so like those places when you actually factor in like local and state like tax and fiscal policies it's actually quite unfree so if you live like say like Texas or a lot of like a Sun Belt, for that matter you have like it's much it's a much lighter load overall but yeah it's, it's misleading because when you say the u.s collectively it depends what you're talking about as well because there's just so many states I and mean, there's just so many different policies certain states are actually quite hands off in terms of government like in texas for example where i live most of my life the government only convenes every other year for just three months there's not that much taxation there's no income taxation regulation is not that hardcore but When you start going to like other states, it the 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 story changes. The problem is people don't really like to research much anymore. Research is hard. It takes like minutes, if not hours, to get like really good takes on like what's going on. And our instant gratification culture, which I think is tied also to central banking because it changes incentives, our instant gratification culture does not incentivize people to actually make um, long-term decisions. And that's why you have soundbite culture, why you have outrage culture, and you have like really dumbed down discussion that really belongs in the chapter of Brave New World rather than like a, a chapter of like a free society.
1: Yeah. So you made me think of two things that I want to sort of dig into a little. I think your your point around like the instant gratification and, and that being linked to central banking, I think is something that is completely ignored, and, and is blamed on capitalism. Like the fact that oh, I, I hear, it, I get it from people even that I, that probably agree with me on most things, but I you know I say something about capitalism, they're like oh well, capitalism encourages consumption, isn't that?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: The debt-driven system that we have has nothing to do with free market, um, a free market monetary system has literally nothing it's the opposite. (laughs) Like we have, and I I don't know if we want to dig into that topic, but like we, government should not be involved with the creation of money. Like if if you think that, if you think that this is capitalism, a central bank or an entity that is given the authority by the government, whether it's independent or not, because I know people say, oh, it's private, this and that. No, it has legal license to print money and to, to control the cost of existing money and future money through interest rates it has nothing to do with a free market like zero it's the opposite of a free market <laughs> but i feel like, and 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 that has repercussions i think to the morality of people because it makes people take on more debt which makes people make certain decisions because they're in in more debt right you you make you have poor it's like sort of maslow's hierarchy of needs you make different decisions based on your economic standpoint and and whatever incentives the system gives you. So everybody is incentivized to go into debt and buy a home and go into debt and buy a car. And then that sort of forces you to make other decisions. And, and I think people just like, this gets blamed on capitalism, it has nothing to do with capitalism. So that was one point that I think you, you mentioned, but I, I, I feel like is very not well understood at all by most people.
0: I mean, central banking is like one of the key planks of the Communist Manifesto, and it's very simple. It centralizes government control over people's lives, and it makes it easier to tax people, makes it easier to finance huge spending programs, both domestically and abroad, with the uh, warfare state. That's why it's no coincidence that the 20th century in the U.S. has been a century of like increased intervention both domestically and abroad and it has like huge um socioeconomic effects because when you have easy money people just don't save they they go on spending binges they become consumers as opposed to producers because um the the key drivers of like economic growth are like savings and investment and like, which in turn increases like worker productivity and that allows people to consume. Consumption's important, but I believe we have overconsumption and yeah. that's why you see so many people in debt and you can't have a society like that. A society has to think about its posterity and leaving behind like some type of generational wealth where that society will cease to exist.
1: That's right. I, I think one book, I know he, he gets a lot of flack for, or in the last couple of years, he has Peter Schiff around predicting downturns and all that. He was right spot on on the 2008 one though. But he did write a book, um, I think it's How the Economy Grows and How It Crashes. That's probably one of the easiest to understand very like basic economics that will rid you of all this Paul Krugman, we can just print money till we're blue in the face nonsense. And yeah, and, and I think, what what one thing people don't understand is that the cost of borrowing money should be driven by the amount of savings that an economy or a group of people have saved. Shouldn't be driven artificially by somebody deciding, in a in a old, ashy suit in Washington D.C. What the cost of free, future money is. It makes no sense. <laughs> like it's literally insane, and it. If you think about it, it's like, okay, well, if banks had certain amount of money on hand, they have a lot of savings on hand, they can they can offer better rates because they have plenty of savings. So that whole mechanism does not exist anywhere in the modern world. It, that That's actually free banking. Like if you've just kept banks honest, okay, you have a million dollars in, in savings, I can offer cheaper credit. If I had $10, I'm, I can't offer. The, the cost of borrowing then is a, a way more expensive because I have less in my bank. So it's like... These are very simple things if you think about them on the micro level but then it gets very demystified at the the macro level especially the way economics is taught in schools and in colleges where it's like oh well no the us is different we can just borrow money into infinity it doesn't matter it's just a whole bunch of hogwash um yeah so i'm just ranting on that (laughs) it's a topic that boils my blood i don't care that it's a hundred years old I'll go blue in the face, miss, you know, trashing central banking and and arguing for whatever it is—bitcoin, gold, silver—I don't care. It, just government needs to be out of money, and then then we can talk about other political issues.
0: Well, you have every reason to be mad, Bill, because this is a very big issue and that affects like everyone's lives, but no one wants to freaking talk about it. And Peter Schiff, uh, he's great. I mean, his forecasting may be off base at times, but he gets like the conceptual topics, which is the most important thing in this discussion is that like you can't have like systems like built on debt finance via central banking. That's his house of cards like in the making. And I think like the US system is definitely playing a, uh, a dangerous game because once the demographics start doing their work, it's going to hit a point of no return and unfortunately i think like the the culture there isn't really a movement towards like actual free markets i see a, a stronger lurch towards the left or at the very least a some kind of oligarchical collectivism i think because i don't think that a lot of people really care that much about decentralization localism and other issues that will like disintermediate the state or at the very least put like a stopgap on the managerial state's growth
1: yep I think to your to your point before like if you if you just look at you well know, what what is debt and what and then when you have a whole society going to that what is it you're basically living at the expense of your own future so that'll tell you that a lot of people that are in debt are going to have a rougher future unless there's other ways to get out of it, you know, inflating the currency and just destroying everyone's savings. You could do that. But in general, that's where I think we're, we're headed. I think to your earlier point, which I think is something you wanted to talk about, like there are paths for, it's like, well, okay, all that, if, that, if that's what you think the assessment of the current situation is, well, then what's the way out of it for an individual or for, or for a group of individuals? And I think that what you said, the online route, what we're doing here and creating products and whatever doing online business basically or even any business in general just online is is lower startup costs in general versus a brick-and-mortar business allows you to the to me the only way you can protect yourself is by becoming wealthy like in the long run so that that should be everyone's goal individually it is possible for for as I think there's no capitalism is a win-win thing as long as we have freer markets, free markets in general. As many people as like Navala's mentioned this, wealth is like it's a choice and a decision. Like you make you take the actions and anyone can become wealthy. There's no limits to that. And I and I actually think that there's that book that came out in the mid I think it was the mid nineties, the the sovereign individual. But I think there will be a turning point for individuals and communities when when the when the the services of government will basically the, the only way you can remove yourself from the current system is when you don't need the current system and, and the last planks of the current system right or are, are the things that they claim to have that only they can do is like security. So when the technology advances enough and when the wealth can be accumulated, accumulated enough on the individual level where you can protect yourself and your community, Way better than the state can, which I think we're, and I would argue we're probably already there. Then, either you can move to a country where it's much freer, if if this country or another country gets more uh, like controlling or totalitarian, or the groups of people that agree with those principles move to some place. It could be like you know, like that Hong Kong model, or or some other free city type model. Um, but that's where I see things going. It's like wealth and, and, and sort of that sovereignty of the individual. If you build that, then you can actually protect yourself from the mistakes that governments and, and, and other corporations are making around, uh, sort of our, our future. It's like, no, there, that's the only path out that you actually have control over.
0: No, I, I fully agree with you, Bill. In fact, I think that the best antidote to this whole conundrum is, like, self-improvement because that's what you ultimately have control. You have control over your time and your money and your relationships. And I think that focusing on trying to get as wealthy as possible and becoming as socially anti-fragile is what all individuals should be doing. And then, like, if you want to, like, change other people i would say get more involved in your immediate community actually try to like rebuild civil society because i believe civil society is one of the strongest like checks against like government overreach and that's one of the things that the left has understood really well that's why they've co-opted all these groups and have like effectively destroyed civil society like boy scouts and whatnot and that um these are like the real these are the real battles you should be focusing on not like the outrage politics or getting involved in like these futile political campaigns and these efforts that will just like make you more stressed will leave you broke and ultimately spiritually unfulfilled um i think that that's where people should be focusing more internally than externally because if you look at politics Most of the people playing those games, they're rich or they've got really, really, really wealthy networks and they were not built overnight. So, yeah, if you want to like play with the big dogs, you've got to go, you've got to go hard when it comes to your self improvement and like your financial law. And it sometimes takes a lot of like really gritty and dirty work, but nothing pretty is ever built overnight.
1: Yeah. I I think one of the other, like one of the things I thought. And, and this relates to what we were talking about before when you're comparing capitalism versus these social democracies or, or whatever you want to call them, or, or even to socialism. At a core principle, I think I've come to the conclusion myself that even if those systems were somehow were better on average, like the, the results, the outputs were better, I would still support capitalism. And, the, and the, it's more from a principle of that because capitalism is basically believing in, in freedom, that that system is the one that actually can, it encourages human excellence. And I think, when, I think that's actually why we had the Industrial Revolution, because we allowed people to just make their own choices and like create, like that's actually what gets us out of poverty and what makes us progress. And my own, even my own self-development, like I wouldn't, let's say somebody would have helped me when I was in situations where I was unemployed, like it probably would have helped in the moment. And I did actually, I did collect unemployment for like eight weeks. I think I collected a couple hundred dollars once when I was unemployed and it sure, it helped me, but by large part, doing, getting to where I am, took a, took me mostly from my own decisions and effort that that yeah that, that I think that's the way I don't know robbing people of that ability to actually fix their own problems is actually one of the worst things that you can do, and I think that's we we sometimes we over we overvalue like the help that we can give someone rather than the opportunity to actually fix their own problems and the gratification that that comes with it yeah,
0: you're correct bill in that capitalism is more than just like a utilitarian type of system that produces the best results it's arguably a moral system as well and that like it means that free individuals can dispose of their property in the way they see fit and they can associate in the way that they also see fit and that's why like it's important to stress like the freedom aspect because you basically own your life and like whatever decision you make, that's like your responsibility. That's why I, I like that system. I don't like the idea of being told by other people or other institutions what I, I can and can't do. That's like something for me to figure out. And if there are social consequences with my decisions, I own them. That's that's what it's all about at the end of the day. Yep. And that's a case we, we have to make. It's ultimately like it's like extreme ownership as uh, Jocko Willink says it best. And yeah, and that these days, um, it's unfortunately de-emphasized because there's a lot of victimhood victimhood complex and the idea that like you have to be saved by the state or some arbitrary institution and there's not a lot of people that take ownership for their bad decisions.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Everyone, I think if you have your health and your mind and your body, you're capable, everyone can save themselves. And that's actually the that's the best thing. That's the healthiest thing for 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 the people that that can do that. But listen, I'm, it's been great. I think we covered probably exactly what I thought we would cover. It's pre- pretty awesome discussion. I hope people benefit from it. Hopefully, it keeps the conversation going. But thank you, Jose. Any, anything you want to add? Uh, where people can find you? What you're working on next? That they can look out for?
0: Yeah, you can just. Go to my website, josealnino.com. That's where I have all my blog posts and books. My 2 ebooks are there. And if you want to join my newsletter, it's josealnino.com forward slash newsletter. I do like daily emails on a lot of like my writings and some of my thoughts about political strategy and just public policy in general. I'm taking more of like a state and local approach to like what I'm writing about these days. And if you want to follow me on social media, I'm mostly on Twitter, uh, Jose Nino. And thank you so much for having me on, Bill. It was a pleasure chatting with you.